So God looks at this garden and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the first time that God says it's not good and there's no sin in the creation. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because God hasn't revealed it yet and it will take him thousands of years to reveal it. But God is triune and God is relational. God is individual, three members in the Trinity, but he is community, three members in the Trinity. I don't know how that works. I just know that God is first and foremost a relational being and is woven in his essence, being, ontology, everything. And so when he looks at humanity, he sees one. And he says, that's not good. If humanity is truly to be the image of God, then humanity has to be more than one. And so he's going to create a woman. And then he's going to say the two will become one flesh. Because when God's math, one plus one is one. And that one plus another one, your kid, is one. Because here's the reality. Your family reflects the Trinity. Because now I have a family that is community. And in that family, I reflect individuality. Because we're not all meant to just be carbon copies of everybody. But I also reflect unity because we're working together if we all understand that our family is worship. That my family now is meant to tell the truth about God. And God is individuality and unity. God is working together. God is expanding. God is creating. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to get married. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to have children. That's not the point. The point is that if you are not married or you do not have children, you find family. And that's why we are now a new creature in Christ as the body of Christ. You see, in the First Testament, the family was the only way you could find it because the next family was like miles away. And there was no Holy Spirit and dwelling people. So the only way you connected to the Spirit was going to the tabernacle on the Sabbath, space, time, and matter, and then you came back to this family where you needed all these kids to stay alive. You needed all these kids to till and ground. And there was a whole lot of tilling to do. And the next family was really far away. But now the population is big. And now the Holy Spirit is in all of us. And now I can find family anywhere. Now I find family in the church. But what it does mean is that I, when I go out and do ministry, if I'm not married and I don't have kids, I, we're all part of a family somewhere either biologically with our parents and brothers and sisters or spiritually with the body of Christ. But it does mean that when I do ministry, I should go as male and female, not by ourselves because that might lead to temptation. And I'm not saying it will, I'm just saying this is wise. But we do it together because femininity has something in ministry that I cannot add. And I have masculinity that has something that femininity doesn't have. And so together we go. And so the point is now there's no pressure to get married and have kids to find your fulfillment because now we are a new body in Christ. It does not make having families and kids obsolete, but it doesn't mean that the church has to put pressure on you or make you feel guilty if that's not happening, which we have unintentionally, or maybe intentionally, I don't know, done for a long time in America. It just means you need to be intentional, biologically or spiritually, and some kind of expansion, some kind of a fruitful multiplying in order to reflect the image of God. And there's a lot of kids out there that need to be adopted, whether physically or just big brother, big sister, or ministries in the church, or adults who are now overgrown children because they're never, 
their development was arrested somehow from dysfunctional family. There's so many places you can have kids, so to speak, without having kids. And that's what God says. So it's not good for man to be alone because he's meant to be community. The Lord God formed every living animal out of the field, the bird, the trees, and all that kind of stuff. And he brings them all one by one to Adam. Two reasons. As Adam names all these animals, to name something gives you authority. And so now he's giving the authority of Adam over the land, because he told him to rule and to do, and now he's giving authority to Adam over the animals. And Adam has a direct involvement in naming them all, which means they all obey his command. Imagine that, a cat who actually comes to you. <laughs> Anytime you wonder if, you're still, if you've, you still have the full image of God, and I don't mean that you've lost the image, but operating functionally, just tell your cat to come. When it doesn't listen to you, you'll be reminded of your fallenness. Okay? But it also does this, so that Adam can see that everything has a pair. That if God is community, he wove community into everything in creation. And then he can sense his incompleteness. Not because of sin, but just because it's incomplete. And it makes him long for something to complete him. So, how does God reconcile this? He puts Adam into a deep sleep. Now, I don't think we should see this as God literally putting Adam to his sleep and then God like does surgery and like cuts him open and pulls a rib out of his body. And that's not the point. The word deep sleep is only used in the Bible as a vision. We're going to, when we get to Abraham in chapter 15, we're going to be told that Abraham fell into a deep sleep and God gave him a vision. The point is not a literal surgery happened here. The point is a spiritual truth is being communicated to Adam and a vision. That when he goes to sleep, there's no woman. And when he awakes, there is a woman. But how is he supposed to see that woman? He's never seen a woman before. He doesn't know what the purpose of her is. So God is a teacher. The first thing he does is on a very physical level, he shows Adam pairs of everything. So that Adam, when he first wakes up, he'll realize this is my pair. God uses an analogy to teach him a truth. Then in the vision, he sees the woman being pulled from him, meaning that the woman is him in a way. Just like the Trinity is all one God, but separate gods. Not literally, we're like that. But there is some sense that she is an individual, but she's the same as Adam. That's what the vision is communicating. And that they're together the image of God. That they're linked. Just like these are linked, then horizontally we're also linked. And then he's communicating this. That Eve was not taken from his back for her to follow him. Yes, sir. She was not taken from his front for him to, her to lead him. He may be the head, but I'm the neck that turns it. She's not taken from his foot for him to trample her. She's not taken from his head like Athena coming out of Zeus's head to be smarter to rule over him. She's taken from his side, side by side, the cliche wedding cake. Okay, there's a truth there that they walk together in partners as they complement and complete each other. And yes, as dorky as it is, the Jerry Maguire line, you complete me, has truth to it. Not that I recommend that movie, but <laughs> the reality is this. She's taken from a sign. So they're partners. They're equals. And without femininity, I'm not complete. 
but I am complete because I'm in the image of God. But I become more complete with her. I become more complete with children. I become more complete with all of you. We just become more and more and more complete. I'm not lacking in not having you. We're just add to it. And so this equality is important. Now Eve is called his helper. Now I know that's a really bad word, especially with the book and the movie called The Help and the way we think about it as servants in America and that kind of stuff. But the word helper does not mean you're a servant or a slave to me that I obey command. The word help means that I need help. It means that Adam is actually lacking. It's not diminutive of the woman being the help. It's actually diminutive of Adam in the fact that he's lacking and he needs help. And God always creates the best. And so when he creates a help for Adam, it's the best. So that actually gives great value to woman. And it doesn't make her lower either because God in Psalms is called our helper. And that doesn't lower him. The idea is an intelligent person, when they can't do something, they ask for help. And they find the best thing that they can find to get them help, and that is woman. And so to call her help gives her great value, great dignity, great worth. And so these all communicate that they're equals. They're both made in the image of God. She's his helper. They complete each other. They become one flesh, and she's taken from his side. But at the same time, he does have headship. He does have headship. The fact that he was created first, the fact that he got to name the animals and she didn't, the fact that he gets to name her. But don't feel threatened by headship either because headship is not the way that we think of headship. Headship for us is making the decisions. But headship in the Bible is not necessarily that. Notice how God has ultimate headship, but notice how he passes it off and gives great meaning value, worth, and dignity to humanity. Headship means that I instill you. I, I make my life about giving you dignity, about lifting you up, making you greater. Headship is a spiritual leader. I don't think headship has to do with, I am the teacher and women keep your mouth shut. I think that's a result of sin in certain areas of what was happening in the culture. I believe that the idea of headship is mostly communicated because there's prophetess who would come and tell the men what to do, thus saith the Lord. He was made a queen as the image of God to rule and subdue the planet. Headship is not that I tell you what to do, I'm the authority. Headship means that I'm the spiritual leader. Headship means that it's my goal to build you up, to point you towards God, to make sure that God is a part of this, to make sure that we're, we're just, if we get off task, I'm the one that Somebody's got to do it. It doesn't mean that woman can't do it. It doesn't mean that she never can. It just means somebody has to have the responsibility to do it because if some, nobody does, nobody will do it. It also means that with great headship also comes great responsibility. And that's not just a Spider-Man quote. That was a long way before that. The reality is this. Who, gets, who sinned first? Who gets the blame for it all throughout the Bible? Adam. Adam. Headship means you're also... You're responsible for everything that happens. Right? And then when we get to Ephesians and 1 Peter, notice how the Bible defines headship. Men, live in all understanding of the woman. Understanding means that you know her intimately. And if you know somebody intimately, they change you. And if they change you, that means your decisions are about her, not just you and she serves you. 
Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did he love her? By pursuing her to the ends of the earth, no matter what she had done, ultimately dying for her so that he can lift her up to the highest position and all authority, to become greater than the angels, Peter says. Does that sound like headship in the way that we think of headship? Headship means just being like Christ. And women submitting has nothing to do with like you take commands from him. It has everything to do with both of you get to be Christ. Because Christ has headship, but Christ also submitted. And if you think that man has more value or better in some sense because of his headship, then that means the father is greater than the son for his headship over the son. And that's not true. If you want to know what true headship and submission looks like, look at the way that Christ talks about his relationship with God. Because in that, Christ is functioning as a head over us, but it's always serving us, always building us up, dying for us, redeeming us, lifting us over him. And when you see submission, it's Christ loving God, praying with him, learning about him, talking about him. And so what you see is that if you study men and women in psychology, women want to be loved more than respect. They want respect, but what they really want is to be cherished. A man wants to be respected, but a man has difficulty cherishing, and a woman has difficulty respecting, which means only together in dependency with God can we become complete and provide. It has nothing to do with inequality or abuse. It has everything to do with unity reflecting the Trinity. And that takes a lifetime to try to figure out how to execute that in your actual relationships with husband, wife, brother, sister, mom, and dad, whatever. And so this is what he creates. So, when he comes out, man looks at her and says, woman. Did he understand the meaning of the vision? Yes, because he named her in connection to his name. Meaning he saw himself as one with her. And he praises God for it. And then it says, for she was taken a man. This is why a man leaves the father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. Now, typically in our culture, the woman leaves the, man, the family and joins the man. But God says this is the reason that man leaves his family. See, it's easy for a woman to cling to a man. She's designed that way. It's harder for a man to walk away from everything and serve her. And the idea is the man is supposed to be the head, and he's supposed to step away from all of his old connections, pull her along as one flesh, and they start a new family, a new life together. And it becomes about their unity. Because here's the thing. That relationship becomes a model of covenant. And there's only two covenants that you'll ever make in your life, with God and your spouse. And if the God is the kind of God that will pursue you to the end of the earth and honor his covenant no matter what, then that's what marriage looks like too. And yes, I know there are people who have been divorced in here and I know all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that, I'm saying what the divorce was wrong. It was not good. I'm not saying that you're evil or bad or all that kind of stuff. You did it because we all have sins. And we all mess up and we all make mistakes. And that's why Christ died for us. And Christ died just as much for divorce as everything else. All I'm saying is, let's not just act like divorce is okay in the church like we have been. Oh, we know it's bad and disrupts the family, but we're not really willing to call it what it really is. 
it's a failure to reflect the image of God. Because the only way that humans are going to know what God's character is like is from us. And if we're the kind of people who give up on our covenant relationships, then God is the kind of person who gives up on his covenant relationships. And if you've done that, that's in your past. That's, that's your sin, just like we all have sins that are in our past. And we're going to keep sinning. And the goal is to keep going to God for forgiveness and redemption and to be transformed so that we don't do it again. I'm not here to condemn you or to make you feel guilty. I'm just here to say that divorce is just like all those other things. And in the same way that we should walk away from it, we can also find redemption from it. And we can start all over now that we know. But I also don't want to also say that if you were the one who was the one who was left or abandoned, then there's no fault there either. Because that's like blaming God because we walk away from him. The fault is not in the fact that you got divorced. The fault was the fact that you gave up. Does that make sense? And I don't mean, really, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I just mean that that's, a, that's clear in the Bible. The character of God is I pursue you to the ends of the earth no matter what. And even if it kills me, emotionally, psychologically, but that's okay. Because I find my source of fulfillment and Christ and not whether you like me or not. And that's important. I know that's easier said than done, but I'm just saying to be a Christian is radical. And to pursue an unfaithful or emotionally absent or whatever spouse is radical. And it's not easy. It's not hard. It's not easy. It's not fun. But to tell the truth about God is to do it. And the only way to do it is to find your source in Christ. And I think that is true of many other relationships as well. And so the reality is this is what he's called Adam and Eve. For this reason, they will become one flesh because that diversity within unity tells the truth about God. Community. Community. And so the man and his wife were both naked and they were without shame. Now, what this does not mean, because we in the story here, they were naked without shame. We get to the end of chapter 3 and it ends with they were naked and with shame. And it's not like chapter 3 was saying, chapter 2 is like saying, hey, all this time they're naked. And then chapter 3, they're like, oh my gosh, we've been naked the entire time. <laughs> That's not what it means, that they realize they were naked. The point is that they were emotionally and psychologically vulnerable and transparent before each other. That nothing was hidden from each other. Every thought that he had and she had, they shared it. Every desire, every fear, whatever. And they accepted each other. And we know they accepted each other because they found ultimate acceptance in Yahweh. Therefore, they were able to find significance and acceptance in everything else. And they had no shame because they were good with God and they were good with each other and there was nothing to be ashamed of. There was nothing to hide. They could be completely vulnerable, completely transparent. They could be themselves. And only when you're truly vulnerable, truly transparent, truly yourself, do you find true acceptance and true community. And that's important. Because we all now know that many of us hide ourselves. 
And even with our own spouses that we've been married for years to, it's hard to truly open up to completely in every area of our life. No filter. But that means when the more you put a facade up, the more you hide yourself, the more you communicate a different image of who you are to people so they'll like you, the more that you're not yourself with them, the mean the less community you find with them. And yeah, will some of them reject you? Yes, because we live in a fallen world. Are there things that you legitimately have the fear in your life? Yes, because you're a sinner. But imagine a community that recognizes that we're all sinners, we're all screw-ups, we all have deep dark sins, and can truly be vulnerable and share everything and not reject each other because we're all the same, as long as we're desiring to be reconnected to Yahweh, what true community would be like. And that's what God is saying. Everything was good. And that's important because now God has established their good connection with Him. He established their good connection with creation. And He established their good creation with each other. And this is good. Community, you have three desires. Every choice, every decision you make is about these three things. You want to feel safe and secure, loved and accepted, and have a purpose and a meaning in life. Are they safe in the garden with God? They lack nothing, and there's a fence to protect them. Do they have acceptance in the garden? Yes. And do they have a purpose and a meaning? Expansion. Everything is good. Three relationships, God, creation, each other. Three basic desires that drive every choice you make. All fulfilled, all met. Diversity, unity, everything is good community. And that's where chapter 3 comes in. How it all gets lost. So as we develop this, this is all going to be undone. And what we're going to find when we get to chapter 3 is that chapter 3 is going to repeat. It's almost like a mirror image of chapter 2, but it's the opposite. And now we're going to see how everything's undone. But the thing that God is trying to communicate to you is this. One, this is not God's fault. This is a result of our autonomy. Don't blame him. Two, God presented himself first and foremost as the redeemer. Therefore, he's able to redeem this as well. If he can take the chaos, the void, the darkness, and bring this to it, then he can take this creation that already has that image in it there and restore it. If he can create the image, he can restore it. And three, everything was good. So learn what good means in chapter one so that you actually know what it means for you to work towards good in your life. Does that make sense?